Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Gender wage disparities exist in most industries with women making less than their male counterparts. The cumulative effect is profound. Collectively, more than 55 million full-time working women earned an estimated $546 billion less than their male counterparts in 2019. That's according to the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. Today, where we live, we focus on the pay gap in medicine. Coming up, we hear from women physicians. And are you a woman working in medicine or science? Do you think you are paid fairly for your work, including opportunities in the academic setting? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Dr. Anise Chagpar. She's professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Chagpar, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. So nice to be here. So I just wanted to lay out some facts for our listeners uh, here. Women department chairs in medicine earned 88 cents for every dollar received by men. That's from JAMA. Last year, the gender pay gap was 28 percent, with female physicians earning on average $116,000 less than men per year, and also only 25% of full professors are female. So I understand your goal is to change these statistics, and you teach negotiation to women physicians. Why is this necessary? So, you know, Lucy, as, as you pointed out, there is this gender disparity in terms of pay, promotion, and perks. And that's true in academic medicine as it's true in other professions as well. I got interested in teaching negotiation to see if we could do something about that. And interestingly, through a grant that I received from the AMA called the Joan Giambalvo Award for the Advancement of Women, we created a course on negotiation for women faculty and trainees and actually demonstrated that negotiation training, both subjectively and objectively, moves the needle in terms of helping women to negotiate better for what they deserve. So let's talk about your background. You've got four post-medical degrees, including an MBA from Yale, and you and your employer, you've negotiated uh, for them uh, to consider your background in your pay. So how successful was that for you? You know, I, I was blessed that I actually was pretty successful in negotiations um, throughout my, my career. I think that's because I really frame things in a sense of how can we grow the pie? How can we work better together um, so that everybody benefits? And I think that that's a mindset that women really can embrace. Actually, everybody can embrace, but it makes for more successful negotiations. When we talk about negotiating, uh, tell us more about what you mean and with these virtual workshops that you've offered, what are your participants learning exactly? 
Yeah, I've been teaching negotiation for the AAMC as well as a number of advanced uh, universities, Johns Hopkins, University of Pennsylvania, and so on for a number of years now. And for me, negotiation training is really about three main facets. The first is preparation, knowing how to prepare for a negotiation, building up your confidence, as well as having those tangible facts at your fingertips that help you to be better in terms of the negotiation itself. The second is the negotiation strategy. And the third is post-settlement settlement. What happens after the negotiation? Because the truth is that nothing is ever sealed when you sign on the dotted line. There's always more negotiating to be done. In order to be successful, though, I think women really need to participate. They need to practice that negotiation skills. And so my negotiation workshops have always been really interactive, giving women those skills that they need. When the pandemic hit, a lot of the in-person negotiation workshops that we had came to a close. And so the question was, can we provide the same kind of training with the same interaction in a virtual platform? And the answer, as it turns out, was yes. Who are some of the participants? When we think about um, how uh, the pay gap persists in so many industries, how it really impacts women of color, too. Can you talk about uh, who enrolled and what did they see after taking your course? Yeah, so we had a huge diversity of women taking the course, and that was something that was really gratifying. As you point out, there is intersectionalities in terms of the pay gap uh, that we see. So African-American women may have uh, maybe even further disadvantaged than Caucasian women um, and so on. We've seen uh, these kinds of intersectionalities uh persist in many disparities, and that's true in terms of, of gender disparities as well. And so we found that across the board, women were really able to uh, use negotiation training to their advantage. Um, whether they were early on in their career, we did a course uh, for trainees who were just completing their, their training all the way up through senior faculty. We had chairs taking the course. We had uh, faculty who were just uh, starting out in that assistant to associate professor level. We had people who were in private practice who don't have the opportunity to avail themselves of negotiation training through academic institutions, but who equally need that kind of training to negotiate their contracts with hospitals and so on. So it was really gratifying to see such a spectrum. And we had women from across the country participate. Again, you're hearing on Zoom, Dr. Anise Chagpar here on Where We Live, professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, she helped launch negotiation uh, workshops for women physicians uh, who are making less than their male counterparts. If you're a woman in medicine, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, I'm curious when we, we think about um, these courses and the participants, the interest, as you mentioned, you know, how does that change the thinking of these institutions? Because when we hear about negotiation, does that mean the onus is entirely on women to just be better negotiators? What role do institutions have? You know, I think negotiation, when we think about negotiations, there's always more than one party involved and all parties benefit when an agreement can be reached. That's the joy and the beauty of negotiation. 
What's been interesting is that I found that a lot of institutions are actually very much interested in helping women faculty to succeed. So after we launched the course, um, many institutions contacted me and said, can you do this course for us, for the women faculty that we have? Uh, and I've been delighted to do that as well. When we think about uh, this show focused on uh, women in medicine, but I think about, you know, so many women in different industries who could also benefit uh, from these negotiation strategies. So for women that are listening, you know, what's like one of maybe the one of the one or two tips that you can give them when they think about their worth and what they bring to their organization? Yeah, Lucy, you know, you're, you're so right. When we launched this course, uh, people from other industries reached out to me as well. Nurses, healthcare administrators saying, hey, we have a gender wage gap as well. Can we participate? And so I agree with you. I think everybody can learn to be better negotiators, even men. And I think that there's a few tips that I, I can share. One is, Always think about the negotiation, not from the standpoint of being adversarial. It's not more for you, less for them. It really is better to frame the negotiation as how can we grow the pie? How can we benefit more together uh, than either of us can alone? Having that framework of being joint problem solvers oftentimes helps us to improve both our relationships as well as the objective value that we get out of the negotiation. Thinking about things from the other person's standpoint, oftentimes it's really hard for somebody to say no, but there are many constraints as we know that really kind of tie one's hands. So think outside the box. What are other things that can add uh, to a negotiation? And think too about what you can concede. Oftentimes people don't think about that. They think, I want more for me. Why should I ever concede anything? But if you think about it, if there are concessions that you can make that cost you very little, that help somebody else, you're growing the pie. And in so doing, they will do the same in return. So just a few tidbits to think about. Now, of course, there are many, many others, and we talk about this in the course, and I'm always happy to talk to other people about how they can improve their negotiations as well. Again, you've been hearing Dr. Anise Chagpar here on Where We Live, Professor of Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. We're going to continue talking about uh, negotiating and how uh, women physicians are working to raise other people up as well. Dr. Chagpar, thank you so much for talking to us about your, your negotiation workshops. What a great idea. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Lucy. It was great being here. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, outside the body, oxygenation of blood. 
It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about the gender gap in medicine, which has widened from 2019 to 2020. The medical networking platform Doximity reported female physicians earn on average $118,000 less than their male peers. And there are zero specialties where women and men make the same. We're learning how women are working to change this statistic. My next guest is pushing for institutional change after attending a negotiation workshop for women physicians. Dr. Vidya Prakash is on Zoom with us, professor of internal medicine and infectious diseases at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. She also is director of the school's Alliance for Women in Medicine and Science. Dr. Prakash, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Lucy. I'm honored to be here. So I understand you attended the negotiation workshop that was organized by Dr. Chagpar, who we just heard from. You attended a couple of years ago. So tell us why you signed up. Absolutely. So I had the privilege of attending Dr. Chagpar's seminar on negotiation through the Association of American Medical Colleges Midwims uh, session. So it's an intensive several day seminar. Uh, for women who are in their mid-career in academic medicine. And I really wanted to hone my negotiation skills, learn more about negotiation, and also learn more how to strategically plan my career. I understand you have a background in the military. And so tell us what you experienced when it came uh, to pay in the military and the eye-opener you got when you went into civilian medicine. Absolutely. I think a common misconception and something that I hear all the time is, wow, you must have experienced a lot of gender bias when you were in the military. And I will actually say that couldn't be farther from the truth. In the military, you they go by time. And so they have a very specific timeline and everybody receives the same pay. It wasn't until I got out of the military and entered the civilian world and especially academic medicine that my eyes were open to the great disparities, uh, especially in pay between men and women. So tell me more about when we think about the military, for those of us uh, who have not uh, served, how the promotion cycle works and why there's not that ambiguity there that you see in the civilian world. Absolutely. I, I think in the military system, like I said, they go strictly by time. So mm-hmm. when you have a certain number of years in service, as long as you have done due diligence during that time and you haven't had any setbacks, you're up for promotion. It's really not up for debate. I think it's much more nebulous in academic medicine where there really is no set timeline and every institution has different promotion and tenure criteria. Um, And even when you look at leadership, 
there's no clear guidance on when you're supposed to put somebody up for promotion. There are a lot of nuances in the process. What I like about uh, your story as producer Sujata filled me in before the show is you didn't just take this negotiation workshop and thought about yourself. You literally launched an alliance for women physicians in your living room to help your peers. So tell us about some of the stories you heard from them and some of the action that uh, came out of this. Absolutely. Our Alliance for Women in Medicine and Science right now is an institutional initiative that we launched in 2018. And a lot of people assume that it started as a top-down, you know, dean's office initiative, when in fact it did, as you said, started as a brunch in my living room. I had a struggling mentee who was ready to quit residency because she couldn't balance work and life as a new mom. So I had the faculty and the residents over to my living room and we had a very raw, cathartic discussion about the struggles of being women in medicine um, from things like pay inequity to work-life integration and the list went on. So we started small in the department, grew, and then three years later, we caught the attention of the leadership and then launched something institutional. And in the process, what we have uncovered is that as Dr. Chagpar said, women are really struggling with not only pay, but promotion to leadership positions. And AWIMS has been instrumental in narrowing that gap. And, you know, I attended Dr. Chagpar's negotiation seminar four years ago. I still have those notes from her session. It was so impactful, so powerful. And I really feel it's my duty to bring that back to SIU and we're launching our own mid-career leadership development uh, longitudinal program. And I've invited Dr. Chagpar, who graciously accepted to give a negotiation session similar to the one that she gave at AAMC to that cohort. So a couple years ago, when you did that workshop, you were an associate professor. Uh, today, uh, you are a professor of internal medicine and infectious diseases. So talk more about the, the barriers between helping women get promoted from associate to full professor and, and what they're seeing when they look at their male counterparts. I think it's interesting. At, at SIU School of Medicine, we looked at the data. We actually had our human resources department compile a list of faculty uh, and give us their rank and how many years they were in that rank. And we noticed at our institution that the progression from assistant to associate professor, women and men were neck and neck. But by the time you got from associate professor to full professor, the ratio was four to one with men far outnumbering women. Women seemed to fall off the cliff. And when we took that data to department chairs, a lot of it had to do with the fact that it wasn't really on the department chair's radar and women weren't really approaching their department chairs about it. So much of this was about empowering women to know their worth and to not be afraid to ask for it. Um, and I know that Dr. Chagpar talked about this as well. Um, it's really recognizing your value, not being afraid to ask for it, um, and really preparing for these discussions, which many of the women that we talked to were not prepared. I wanted to share a, a social media comment from a listener. Maggie um, works in finance, and uh, you know she wanted to share that she's heard from colleagues who are also children of immigrants, especially women, 
who just tend to negotiate less. The idea of simply being grateful for your dream job after your family works so hard. Can you talk about that? You know, that, you know, the, how the upbringing of individuals can, can lead to where you're, you feel like you are, are um, you know, being disrespectful or uh, your boss may think that you're being uh, too assertive if you ask for more because you deserve it. Absolutely. I, I think it works on both sides. So there's the one part of the equation is that women, especially, you know, you were talking about immigrant women feel like they really don't deserve to ask for more. They should just be happy to, to get what they have. But I think when you look at the negotiation table and you look at the disparities between men and women, women may negotiate just as well, but they face a lot more backlash when they do negotiate um, because of societal and gendered expectations of them, that they are so supposed to be more communal um, and they're supposed to be more group oriented as opposed to thinking about themselves. And so that backlash is what women are up against. And that's exactly why courses like Dr. Chugpars are so essential because the way around that, the only way around that is learning and practicing as much as you can. And I did want to add Lucy with SIU's promotion and tenure experience. After our intervention with, where we looked at the data and we took that data to the department chairs and had the department chairs look meaningfully at women faculty who were languishing in the same rank for at least seven years, by the next promotion cycle, we had the highest number of women faculty promoted to the level of full professor. And you might ask, well, did they suddenly, you know, get prepared within the last year? The answer is no. The answer is that a majority of them were prepared all along. They could have gone up for promotion years before. They just needed that added push to recognize their value and to know that they were deserving of going up for promotion. Again, you're hearing Dr. Vidya Prakash here on Where We Live, Professor of Internal Medicine and Infectious Diseases at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. She directs the school's Alliance for Women in Medicine and Science as we learn about the work that she and her colleagues are doing to raise other women in medicine and science up to help them in negotiation, uh, to help with them uh, attaining leadership positions. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. So this is great at your institution, and I'm wondering if you can talk more about the networking, um, again, through Dr. Chagpar, where are you seeing other institutions thinking about this and other groups of women working to bring this kind of, of collaboration and raising people up where, where they're employed? Absolutely. I, I'm delighted to see the women in medicine movement taking off, and we're seeing more and more institutional efforts to raise women in medicine and science. So, you know, the Alliance for Women in Medicine and Science, AWIMS, is one of many women in medicine groups. And I also love that these groups are not only prioritizing negotiation, but sponsorship. So we talk about mentorship and sponsorship. You know, it, it can be simplified into mentors share their knowledge and wisdom and sponsors share power. So a lot of pay and leadership relies on who has a seat at the table um, and whoever has a seat at the table has a duty 
to bring others up and give them a voice. And so that's what I think is especially powerful about where these women in medicine groups are heading. At the start of the show, I mentioned the cumulative effect of the pay gap in this country. And it's, you know, mind boggling to think of, of the, so many women who are shortchanged despite their background, their knowledge, uh, their leadership potential. When you see that number, more than $526 billion uh, less than male counterparts across many industries, how does that make you feel? It's disenchanting, but I am an eternal optimist. And I am ever hopeful that we will continue to bridge that gap. Um, and, you know, it starts with educating ourselves. And that's why I'm th thankful and grateful to Dr. Chugpar for what she's doing. I also think about um, when I when I brought up the listeners comment about um, uh, upbringing, um, the way that we talk to our uh, our daughters about their self-worth and and how to to ask for things, uh, you know, something that we can maybe start a lot earlier than uh, when we're in the academic setting or in our professional careers uh, looking to make change. You know, that's a great point, Lucy. And I think we also have an obligation to teach our boys. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a boy mom. <laughs> I have two, <laughs> two little ones. And a couple of years ago, my, my now 10-year-old, he must have been eight at the time. He was uh, a little bit younger. He decided to start a toy company. And he built a, a little box uh, with a little pencil case to represent his toy company. And on the, the box, he wrote Toy Koi. And I asked him, what does Toy Koi mean? And he said, oh, that's the name of my company, mom. And his brother gently asked him, do you mean Toy Boy? And he said, no. His reply was, no, no. I want this to be for all genders, not just for boys. And that's why I'm naming it Toy Koi. And a lot of this is rooted in how we raise our girls, but so much of it is also how we raise our boys and kids of all genders so that we're all on the same page. I love hearing that story from you, uh, Dr. Prakash. Uh, I had uh, asked Dr. Chagpar for some tips for our listeners uh, who maybe are thinking about negotiating where they work. What are some uh, takeaways that you want our listeners to hear from your experience? Absolutely. So what I loved about Dr. Chugpar's course is that she took a, a complex talk, topic and she made it um, easy for us to understand. And some of the key takeaways that I took was when I first went into this course, I thought that negotiation was all about someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. And you walk into it almost like it's a battlefield. She made me understand that actually you want to go into it with the goal of a win-win where both parties walk away satisfied and also focusing on interests as opposed to positions. And I loved, loved, loved her emphasis on the fact that you really want this to be about relationships. Um, and a lot of this is about group goals as opposed to individual goals. And really going into it with the mindset of cooperation rather than competition um, were really some of my key takeaways and what have really helped me with negotiation and carrying that message forward to people at my institution.
Dr. Avidya Prakash, again, is a professor at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine and director of the university's Alliance for Women in Medicine and Science. Such a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, there's a quote from Melinda Gates. She says, we're sending our daughters into a workplace designed for our dads. Coming up, we're going to continue talking about the disparities uh, in medicine. We're going to hear from another women physician and then also a male counterpart about what's happening at his hospital to raise women up. You can join us a, a, again at, on social media. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we continue that conversation, I just want to remind you it's Connecticut Public Radio's fall membership drive. You can support Where We Live and all of the other great programming with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. Hi there, you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Ali Oshinsky, a reporter here, and I'm here with Meg Fitzgerald. Hi, Hi, Meg. Hi, Allie. And we're doing a fun drive supporting Connecticut Public Radio, uh, supporting Where We Live, which is one of my favorite talk shows. I mean, I don't want to say favorites now here, Meg, because obviously, you know, other producers are listening. But That's dangerous. I really time. love Where We Live. Um, so if you want to support Connecticut Public Radio, you can go to and Where We Live. You can go to ctpublic.org and click on the donate button or call 1-800-584-2788. Awesome. One of the things that I love about where we live, I'm with you, there's a lot of our producers here. We have a lot of wonderful content. Um, where we live doesn't just talk to newsmakers. They don't just talk about the news. Um, we hear from real people in our towns, in our cities. Um, I feel like where we live absolutely lives up to the name of what it is, where we mm. live. Um, and so it really covers a range of issues. So everything from, you know, what other talk shows can you uh, count on a regular visit from the governor where people Yay. from across the state get to actually ask Governor Lamont the things that are on their mind? Uh, that's one of the things. Yeah, and they don't let up either. They really... They, Lucy asks the hard questions. She does. She is not afraid to lean in and ask the hard questions, and we love her for that. Um, I also think that one of the other things is, like, this isn't just about the issues facing our state, but it's about the people who live here. So uh, where we live really does a great job of taking national issues, you know, everything from mental health and education in the schools, but tackling them from a local perspective. Um, one of my favorite shows recently was called Unpacking Instagram Use for Teens. Wow. What a loaded wow. show, right? Do the adults version next. Absolutely. All of us could, I think, figure out how to unpack um, the issues that we uh, face with social media as part of our lives. But one of the greatest parts about that show was their guest, Dr. And Ka Dr. Catherine Steiner Adair, gave some really helpful tips on, uh, you know, for parents and guardians on how to talk to kids about what they're seeing on social media. So, mm. you know, the show uh, not only helps us sort of dive into the issues of, of the world today, but so much of what I get from where we live um, is about taking like practical tips and, and how to take that into my daily life. And that's one of the things I think is great about, you know, where we live, uh, you know, just like your cup of coffee every morning, you can listen to where we live and get something to help you uh, take with you for the rest of your day, whether you're learning something new about an issue or learning more about an aspect of a community um, here in, in our state. 
Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to drink your coffee out of a Connecticut Public Radio mug, you can go to ConnecticutPublic.org and click donate and find a couple of fun locally themed mugs. Um, Or if you just want to support Connecticut Public Radio and every time when you drink your coffee out of your own mug in the morning, you can support where we live by calling 1-800-584-2788. I love what you had to say, Meg. I think it's so true. You know, like where we live is as reliable if not more reliable than the boost you get from your morning coffee, if you're a caffeine person. If you're a caffeine person, yes. Yes, yeah. Um, it, oh. And it, it regularly makes news. You know, it's a talk show that, that fits all your needs. Get you a talk show that can talk about important issues. Get you a talk show that can uh, make some news. Get you a talk show that can do fun things like gardening shows or uh, different fun topics like that. I'm so glad you brought up the gardening shows. Uh, those are some of my what I also love about where we live is that they're not just tackling the hard topics, but they're bring they're serving you up a cup of joy uh, as well. So <laughs> I love shows like the gardening tip show with guests like Charlie Nardozzi. Um, they uh, where we live just did a show um, with uh, entomologist and author Doug Tallamy. And this man talks all about rewilding your lawn. Mm. Wow. Very cool thing. So if you are a regular listener and you value where we live and the programming you hear every morning, we hope that you'll also consider becoming a supporter today. Um, And you can do that by getting in touch with us and giving at ctpublic.org or call 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, you probably don't hear much about gambling addiction as much as you hear about other forms of addiction like alcoholism. On the next Where We Live, sports betting and online gambling is now up and running in Connecticut. What could this mean for residents in our state? That conversation tomorrow. Now, we've been talking about ways to address the gender gap in medicine. Data show male doctors earn more than $116,000 more per year than their female counterparts. And just 25% of full professors at medical institutions are women. Mentorship can help address this. Joining us now on Zoom is Dr. Neha Jain, Medical Director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at UConn. Dr. Jain, welcome to the show. Lucy, thank you so much for having me. I wanted to highlight something that you told Sujata, our producer. Uh, You said that women are in a lot of ways raised not to promote themselves and that gets further exacerbated when you're a woman of color or if you're a woman of color from another culture like you. And so you're typically conditioned to keep your head down and just work hard. So talk more about that and when you decided that you you wanted to be heard and to help others in your same profession. Yes. Um, and it's funny that you say this, you know, yesterday I was um, reading an excerpt from Indra Nui's interview. And in that interview in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, she said, you know, I would never imagine asking for a pay raise that is so cringeworthy. And I really think that it's certainly a gendered expectation. It is something that women are often raised to believe. But it is also very much a cultural expectation, at least where I come from, from South Asia, from India, 
where you are always told, you know, again, to be nice, to work hard, to be humble, and that things will then fall into your lap if you are good. And it took me a long time in my academic career to realize that that's not how the real world works. Uh, like the previous speaker said, you know, both Dr. Chakbar and Dr. Prakash, yes, you have to work hard. Um, yes, you have to be nice. But at the same time, you have to know your self-worth um, and you have to ask for what you want. So we were talking about negotiation earlier. How did you work this into your career, Dr. Jane? So... It was it was an interesting pathway for me. You know, when I joined UConn in 2015, I started inpatient and I loved the work. Um, and then soon after that, I became pregnant. And soon after that, I realized that my child had a limb difference. And so immediately I went into a tailspin thinking that, oh, he was going to need you know, PT and OT and this and that. And so I probably couldn't work full time anymore. And I remember being devastated by that. I remember thinking that this was going to be the end of my academic career. And I had the good fortune of just casually talking to a mentor about this, not a formal mentor, the chair of my program informally, and very plaintively asking him, you know, is this going to be career suicide? And, and he very kindly, but at the same time, very firmly said, no, it's not. And so that was my first realization that, you know, there was something that I didn't know the whole picture. And after that, I think I made it a point to actively seek out mentors uh, when it came to negotiation, when it came to asking for promotion. You know, I, I sought out many different mentors and received support and, and a lot of knowledge, again, understanding the lay of the land from different people. And, and that's what led, you know, when I realized there was this opportunity to apply for directorship, you know, I took it. I didn't hesitate. I didn't think that somebody was going to offer it to me. Um, I I had the support to go and ask for it. Mm. You mentioned mentors and the importance of mentorship. I'm wondering if you can talk more about that, because sometimes having a mentor means you get introduced to someone, you have a polite conversation, and then they're on their way, right? Because life gets busy. When we think about being an active mentor and what that really means, how it can be helpful uh, to people. Exactly. So this is exactly what I thought before I came to UConn. I thought a mentor was somebody that you met, you know, once a quarter, had a very pleasant conversation, maybe a coffee or a lunch, and you were on your way. Um, and that changed during that encounter uh, with my chair, where, you know, he supported me through this change in my career path. Um, and then I realized slowly that you don't just have one mentor. A mentor is really anybody who has something of wisdom to impart you, who has something that will help you reach your goals. And so I have had many different mentors, not necessarily people who are way ahead of me in their career path. Often they can be colleagues. Often they can be people in different fields even. But they have, first of all, something that is useful to you. Second of all, they are interested in sharing this with you. And third of all, they have the time and the willingness, again, to, to help you get where you are. 
Um, and, and it can be things very, very simple. So I am still very early in my career. I'm an assistant professor. But a couple of days ago, I shared a story with one of my trainees about saying no because I was overwhelmed when I was a trainee. And then a few days later, she wrote to me about something she was overwhelmed about. And I said, good. And then she wrote back to me and said, you know, I hope you're proud of me. And I said, yes, I am. So something as simple as that, uh, but it really becomes, and, and just like Dr. Prakash's example is such a good one. You know, you have learned something that you know is going to be useful to the next generation that's coming in and you are willing and you find the time to share it with them. I'm glad you mentioned the next generation coming in. When you look at uh, the role of, of the institution, you're at UConn, you know, is mentorship more formalized? Are younger recruits, is this something that's actually in their contracts? That's a great point. So I will lead off by saying that, you know, my experience at UConn is probably not universal. I do think that UConn is very progressive and somewhat ahead of the game when it comes to formal mentorship. I realized after coming here, we actually have a formal mentorship program for trainees, both early in their career as well as for faculty. Um, but not every institution is like this. Um, we have had new trainees now come in asking for mentorship and asking for it to be put in their contracts, which again, wasn't necessarily something that we were even aware of. Um, so yes, this is something that can be done. No, every institution doesn't do it. But if you're aware of it, you can ask for it. Right. Dr. Neha Jain, again, is Medical Director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program at UConn. I wanted to bring another voice into the conversation on Zoom with us, Dr. Dave Shapiro. He's Chief Quality Officer and Vice Chair of Surgery at St. Francis Hospital. Dr. Shapiro, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having us. We've talked a lot about institutional change. So what's happening at your hospital? I think a lot of things are happening around the corner um, in the hospital nearby. And because we're affiliated with UConn and affiliated with Quinnipiac, we have a lot of input from people who are smart, capable, and influential. Trinity and St. Francis are supportive of women trying to get advanced in their departments. And I think that the best thing we've seen in the last, say, three years have been two of the last three medical um, staff presidents um, have been women. We have section chiefs, chairs, and other leader positions who've been taken on, including our chief medical officer, um, by women in multiple specialties. Um, but I think the, the most important thing I, want, I think I should mention is that leadership, um, especially if you're a man in leadership in medicine, is that it's your job to mentor, sponsor, and elevate all the people that you report to you. Mentorship, as we've heard from Dr. Jackbar, Dr. Prakash, and Dr. Jane, it's about collaboration, interaction, and constant interaction. I think the most important thing is if you're a man and you're in leadership in medicine and you can't find a way to mentor or sponsor a non-male person, then you're the one who needs to work at it. We need to be just as supportive as our um, women colleagues in supporting women learners and women trainees and our women colleagues to be elevated. Hmm. Would you say medicine is still an old boys club, Dr. Shapiro? Well, as one of the um, members of the old boys club, but also a member of the LGBT community, I think that it is a boys club. It needs to be fixed. But the colleagues and peers that I, or I should say the mentors that I have on this call who I've learned from today 
and Dr. Jack Barr is going to hear from us at St. Francis about her program. I think that the um, the club is disintegrating. I think there's ways to get around it, and we have to listen to our women leaders, influential women in, in medicine, and hear what they have to say, and not dismiss them, not allow comments to be made either disparaging behind closed doors or in public, um, and act immediately on them when people do that. Those things only promote the concept that this is a male-dominated career. And in surgery, as an example, 50% of, of our residencies are women. We need to support them and treat them the same way. In your experience, Dr. Shapiro, when we think about uh, stereotypes around uh, women uh, because of career planning, but also family planning, you know, has that traditionally been something that uh, you know, maybe some male colleagues that you've had in your career that they dismiss their, their uh, female counterparts uh, because they may need to take time uh, with their families. I've seen it in the past, and I think that so-called um, um, maternal wall that, that women are believed to hit is, um, number one, ridiculous, and number two, just something we need to sweep under the rug. Women, like men in the situation of parenting and women in the situation of parenting, if their career is important to them and their family is important to them, we have to be flexible in the employment world and the institutional world to support anything they want in their career. They can be as active or as um, uh, supported as they can be in their careers. We should be promoting it. I love that uh, term that you use, Dr. Shapiro. Dr. Jade, I wanted you to respond to what he shared. I completely agree with what Dr. Shapiro just said. I mean, you know, women have been having children for centuries. It's not a new concept. Women have been caretakers, not just for children, but often for their parents and other people in their family for centuries. So this is not something to sweep under the rug. This is not something to feel apologetic about when it comes to a woman and not something to feel, you know, dismissive about when it comes to the administration. I think this is just something that gets factored in extremely matter of factly and we keep doing what we're doing. Mm. Well, I loved hearing that perspective from Dr. Shapiro. Uh, you mentioned that you're going to be uh, contacting Dr. Chagpar about uh, her program. Um, any other steps that you'd like to see St. Francis or even the teaching hospitals uh, take um, you know, as we uh, end the show? Uh, just The thing that I did this morning was I wrote down all the names of all the women in medicine who've influenced me, and I ran out of room on my page because there are right. so many of them that need elevation and need to be um, recognized as those people. Um, Jen Martin, our CMO, Dr. Montgomery, our uh, acute care surgery uh, chief, section chief, even people like Christine Fink, who's the surgeon in chief at, at um, Connecticut Children's, and then people outside my institution who are just amazing contributors. We need to elevate them, recognize them, invite them in to speak, and make sure that we see them as influential and as leaders. That's Dr. Dave Shapiro, Chief Quality Officer, also Vice Chair of Surgery at St. Francis Hospital. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Also, Dr. Neha Jain, Medical Director of the Mood and Anxiety Disorders Program. Thanks for sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our tech producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Also, have you supported Connecticut Public Radio yet? It's easy to do, and your pledge helps keep Where We Live and all of the great programming you hear coming to you each day. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to donate.
Good morning. I'm Meg Fitzgerald. I'm a senior project manager here at Connecticut Public, and I'm here along with my colleague and reporter, Ali Oshinsky. Good morning, Ali. Hi, good morning. So happy to be pitching with you on where we live. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Where we live is one of our um, our staples here at Connecticut Public. Allie, did you know that actually this fall, uh, host Lucy Nalpothanchel is celebrating her fifth year as the host of Where We Live? I did. Well, I know that now. And I think it's amazing because um, like I have just listened to the show over the past four years and Lucy came in as a powerhouse and has just like really created a show that fits her and does like an amazing job. And I, I hear her in meetings and I hear her on air and I think... What a gift we have in Lucy Now Potential at the helm of our state's call-in talk show. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I love um, how Lucy really gets to the heart of questions with guests. Um, and, there, you know, I don't know if it's it for you, but there's something so soothing about Lucy's voice. I just really, I, I just, I dig it. It's very lovely. Yeah, it I makes, should listen more. Yeah, you, to you sort should. of emulate the, the soothingness. Um, but also hard hitting, you know? Yes, absolutely. She's not af- afraid to have a little fun and laugh on air, but she's certainly not afraid to go into the hard topics. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things um, I think that's really exciting is the the Where We Live team has expanded. And so we have some new producers who've just Ooh. joined the team. Uh, Katie Pellico and Sujata Srivanasan are new to the producing team, and we couldn't be more excited to have them with us. Um, Sujata has done some really exciting shows recently, uh, things like um, talking about fixing racism in higher education. She did a whole show uh, about um, folks from Connecticut who made it to the Paralympics um, and getting us a little bit deeper into the world of what the Paralympics are like. Um, and she also just recently produced a show that was all about uh, alcohol use disorder in women, a really powerful show about uh, you know some of the health issues that uh, impact us on a day-to-day basis. And if this is something that you have been appreciating, um, if you are aware that Connecticut Public is growing and also bringing more talented staff on every day, grow with us, donate to Connecticut Public Radio. Um, You can pick up the phone right now, call 1-800-584-2788, or you could call when Where We Live's over. We understand you want to listen to the rest of the show. Um, Or you can go to ctpublic.org anytime you want and donate to Connecticut Public Radio and Where We Live. Become a sustaining member, donate once, do what fits right for you. And thank you for giving to Connecticut Public Radio and Where We Live. 